Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. It's uh, wonderful to be back here again. Seems like a long time. I guess last month had five Sundays in it or something like that. But, um, for those of you who are new, new here, I always um, begin my talk with uh, some music. So. <clears throat>
Um, the, those of you who are here the, uh, for the first time, over the last, um, I guess it's four months, I've been talking about uh, the immeasurables. Oh, also, for those of you who are here the first time, um, uh, my style of giving a talk is that if you have questions, uh, you know, please feel free to ask them. You don't have to wait till the end you know, to store them up or something like that. Um, so uh, I don't know what the uh, background is of the people who are new here, but the, Im- the immeasurables refer to a Buddhist idea of uh, what I call heart wisdom. And uh, what I've been discussing is the possibility of cultivating that heart wisdom. So just to give a quick overview of uh, what has been discussed so far is uh, the, f- the four core immeasurables. And the first immeasurable is immeasurable love. Okay. So immeasurable love is uh, based in Buddhism on the, uh, on the experience of wishing that others be happy. Yeah, so um, we've all had this experience of spontaneously wishing that others be happy. Yeah. So uh, it's almost a cliche, you know. I just want you to be happy, right? But we have we have that experience with those that are very close to us. But that sense of um, of wanting others to be happy, of wishing that others be happy, is for most people extremely constricted. It is confined to a very, very few people, and then it very rapidly falls away. Now, like The cultivation of heart wisdom within a Buddhist context is uh, a specific approach that allows you to extend that uh, heart wisdom to ever-increasing and larger groups of people and ultimately to all sentient existence. Yeah? So, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> There's kind of a three-tiered um, uh, understanding of uh, the immeasurables. Uh, the, the first level is, wouldn't it be nice if all people were happy and free from suffering? So it's like, it's just sort of like a, an idea. You know, like, wouldn't that be a nice idea? You know, like, you'd be surprised how many people, though, uh, um, never cursed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's the first level. You know, it's like a possibility. You know, like, and then, and then the next level is actually wishing that all people, you know, be happy and free from suffering. You know, like really, you know, um, relating to people um, in such a way that that is your primary way of interacting with them. You know, developing that understanding. Like, and the third level is assuming responsibility for freeing other people from suffering. And that's called bodhicitta. And I'm going to get to that today. You know, like, um, so, um, so you have those three levels. The first is, wouldn't it be nice if everyone was free from suffering? second level is, may all beings be free from suffering. You know, like, and the third level is, Sentient beings are numberless, their suffering is countless and immeasurable, and I vow to free them from all suffering. So that's, that's, the, that's the level of bodhicitta, you know, that third level. So the, the second immeasurable is immeasurable compassion. And that's based on the experience of wishing that others be free from suffering. Now, obviously, there's a lot of overlap between the first immeasurable love and the second um, immeasurable compassion. You know, but for, 
in terms of practice, uh, the Buddhist tradition does distinguish uh, between the two. Like so, and um, once again, this is based in the in the experience that we've all had of wanting others to be free from suffering, particularly those who are close to us. Once again, though, our ordinary experience is that that's very constricted. You know, like that um, we wish a, a select group of people to be free from suffering, and it's hard to extend that to. Um, to all uh, to all people. In fact, um, there's some people that we may actually wish harm toward. <laughs> like we've had that experience too. Yes, so, you know, like that we have antipathy for. You know, like so. Um, and there are many people in the world whose uh, psychology is such that um, their life revolves around bringing harm to others. Like so, this practice of uh, cultivating uh, the wish that others be free from suffering. Once again, you start this practice with those for whom you can spontaneously generate that wish. You know, like your friends, people who are close to you, people you love. And then gradually you extend it to larger and larger and larger groups of people. See, the wisdom of the heart. What's not known widely in our society and our culture at this time is that the wisdom of the heart, that wisdom can be cultivated just like the discriminative consciousness, that wisdom can be cultivated. Now, in our culture, the wisdom of discriminative consciousness is rewarded. That's how you get ahead. That's how you get good grades. (laughs) That's how you get promoted at work, is is by developing the capacity for discriminative consciousness. Like, so for most of us, our um, heart wisdom is extremely atrophied. You know, like, so, I mean, think of when you first like, uh, learn um, uh, any kind of discriminative skill, such as mathematics or um, any kind of uh, um, scientific endeavor um, or a literary analysis. You know, uh, so when you first start out, you know, like you're all, you're only able to, you know, like with mathematics, they start with addition, subtraction, and then it gets, you know, it gets broader and broader and broader. Similarly, with heart wisdom, when you first start out, it you're only able to extend that kind of heart wisdom under very restricted and particular circumstances. You know, like so, in the Buddhist tradition, however, they uh, Buddhism has developed. Um, skillful means to uh, expand and enlarge that sense of heart wisdom. The third immeasurable is called immeasurable joy, um, mudita. uh, This is a fun one. People like this one a lot. Um, It's uh, um, often translated as sympathetic joy. So this means happiness at the success of others. Happiness for the success of others. Once again, it's it's uh, grounded in a very um, common experience that we all have. That um, say you have a close friend and they've applied for a job, and they really, really, really want that job. You know, like, and they call you and they say, "Oh, I got the job," and you say, "Oh, that's wonderful! I'm so happy for you. That's great." You know, like, so um, that spontaneous. Uh, expression of happiness comes from that sense of connectedness with that person. You know, like so, um, sympathetic joy is the antidote to envy. You know, like, 
and it's the antidote to um, uh, the mind that it's like, oh, I'm so glad they got the bigger car than I have. <laughs> or I'm so glad they got a promotion. Of course, I've been working at this job for 12 years and haven't gotten a promotion, but I'm really happy for them. You know, like it's <laughs> you know, like sympathetic joy is an antidote to that. You know, like the the checking mind. You know, like it's always um, you know, like <laughs> the checking mind is in a losing battle in this kind of uh, relationship because you know, no matter how much you learn, there's someone who knows more. You know, like, you know, like um, uh, no matter how good looking you are, there's someone who's better looking. Sorry, you know, so, but no matter how uh, how much wealth you have, there's always someone who has more. You know, like so. There's that that kind of uh, that kind of relationship to the world is very defeating. You know, ultimately, it's very defeating. You know, like so, uh, mudita arises uh, to as an antidote to that. It's also rooted all of the heart wisdoms. All the facets of heart wisdom are rooted in a sense of connectedness. The central insight of the Buddha was the connectedness of all things. That nothing in existence exists separately. So the development of these heart wisdoms are like facets of that central core insight of the Buddha. Like so that when um, you know when we feel sympathetic joy at somebody else's success, it's because we feel connected with them. You know, like when we uh, uh, wish that somebody be happy when they are, you know, it's because we feel connected to them. So, so that heart wisdom, that's that's how you know the transcendent heart wisdom is presence because of that sense of connectedness. Yeah? So. The fourth one is immeasurable equanimity, which is a wonderful balance to uh, the other three. So, um, and it's rooted in the experience of, of wanting others to, be, uh, to have some calm and serenity in their life. So you have a friend who's very agitated, and they're going through a very, very difficult period in their life, and... Your your sense is you know I just wish that you know I just wish that you could uh, calm down. <laughs> I just wish that you could get some distance on this. You know, like so perhaps a friend of yours has lost a job and it sent them into like this tailspin, which is understandable. You know, maybe they didn't see it coming. You know, maybe they were downsized. You know, like and uh, uh, without warning, they're out of they're out of a job. It can be a very difficult experience. But say you know six, seven, or eight months has passed and they're still on that track. You know, and you might even say to them, you know. Um, Many people, you know, lose their job. It's not the end of the world. That's that's the kind of equanimity. That's the wish that they would have equanimity, that they could see it in a larger context. Equanimity has a lot to do with acceptance. Okay, but as uh, last month, as I uh, when we talked about this, it's important to differentiate between um, equanimity and indifference. You know, like so. Um, as it was mentioned uh, last month, indifference is actually a subtle form of aversion. You know, like equanimity is acceptance, but it's also part of heart wisdom, and so it's important to see that kind of connection. So, um, one of the wonderful things that happens when you begin to practice these uh, immeasurables is you begin to see equanimity as a mode of compassion. Or equanimity as a mode of love, you know, like, so that so that uh, the two don't, aren't like compartmentalized. 
So, um, now those are the four core equi- uh, um, practices of the immeasurable heart, rooted in our sense of connectedness to existence. And the fifth, what I call the fifth immeasurable, is bodhicitta, the, which is the vow to save all sentient beings from suffering. That is to take on responsibility, not, not simply wish that others be free from suffering, but to take on the responsibility to free others from suffering. So the, in the Buddhist tradition, the, um, the immeasurables have slightly different interpretations depending on the school <coughs> in which they uh, are rooted in. So traditionally in Theravada Buddhism, they have these four immeasurables, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. In the Mahayana tradition, they have this bodhicitta, like, which is uh, foundational like, for, for the practice of Mahayana Buddhism. It, it's, uh, it crystallizes the ideal of the bodhisattva. Like, uh, the bodhisattva is the, uh, the enlightening being who remains in existence to free others from suffering. Uh, so here we are in the West, and we're receiving all these different Buddhist traditions, right? And it's, uh, my, uh, my view is that we don't have to accept one or the other. We don't have to be exclusive here. So instead of four immeasurables, I look at it as the five immeasurables. I found some interesting support for this in a, um, a Tibetan Buddhist text uh, by Kunu Rinpoche, who died, uh, I think he died like about ten years ago. Anyway, his sole practice was the practice of the immeasurables and bodhicitta. That's all he did. He didn't do any visualizations, no tantra, no, um, no uh, madhyamaka analysis of emptiness. You know, like, all he did was practice the immeasurables and bodhicitta. And he wrote a beautiful, if you're interested in this subject, he wrote a beautiful um, set of verses on bodhicitta. You know, like, um, I think it's called Vast is the Heavens, Wide is the Ocean, something like that. And, um, and in there, uh, there's a set of verses where he says the, the four immeasurables are the foundation of bodhicitta. Like, so they, they lay a foundation for moving from that, uh, that sense of interconnectedness to that taking on that vow to save all sentient beings from suffering. Uh, so how do you make, how do you bridge how do you uh, bridge build a bridge from the four immeasurables to the realm of bodhicitta to the realm of the bodhisattva All right. so in the traditional approach um, in Mahayana Buddhism the contemplation is to view every single being you meet as uh, as your mother yeah so the idea, yeah, <laughs> I'll get to this just a moment. <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> she said she'd follow me everywhere. <laughs> but but the traditional practice is, you know, Buddhism is rooted in a reincarnational context, right? So in, in uh, those of us who practice in the traditional Buddhist culture, it is amazing to us how, for, how taken for granted reincarnation is. You know, like, so that the view is that every single person in this room has been my mother at some time, in some past life. 
Mm-hmm. And therefore, because as, the, as my mother, you have done so much for me, that I uh, therefore, uh, gratitude for that spontaneously arises, and on that foundation, the wish to save all sentient beings from suffering appears. My experience in the West is that uh, one is that many of us have a problematic relationship with our mother, so it's not exactly an archetype that we readily um, um, sympathize with. You know, like it's (laughs) to say the least. Anyway, (laughs) it's very funny, but. and also, Westerners tend to um, not have um, a, what I would call a strong feeling for reincarnation. You know, like, even those of us who believe in reincarnation, and I, I include myself in that, uh, it's like I did not grow up in that context. It's something that I acquired. So it's like I don't spontaneously relate to people in that way. Like, um, so, um, but the key it seems to me, is the understanding of gratitude. Yeah. So the, the practice here in the traditional Mahayana Buddhism is to generate gratitude. That's the key. You know, like, so there are other means of generating gratitude uh, than um, uh, running around town viewing everyone as your ma. You know, like so, it is possible to generate gratitude, and uh, and that is a very good foundation uh, for building a bridge to the realm of bodhicitta. Yeah? So, how do we do that? Well, there are a number of practices that allow us to uh, develop that sense of gratitude for all sentient existence. One is one is very simple. So, um, as I move through this day. I will remember that everyone I meet has done something for me. Very simple. Very simple contemplation. So, in the morning, at your home altar, if you have a home altar, if not, at your cup of coffee. (laughs) Uh, As I move through this day, I will remember that everyone I meet has done something for me. Uh, It's important not to um, get cosmic about this but to remain very ordinary, like they've stocked a shelf, delivered a package, swept a street, picked up some garbage, you know, like, but every single person you meet has done something for you. You know, like, so when you, when you relate to them, when you uh, engage in this practice, your relationship to people suddenly shifts. You know, you know like, uh, my feeling is that most people get up in the morning ready to do combat with existence. You know, like, and so it's sort of like, you know, like, I'm going to go out there and, uh, you know, like, uh, and when you, when you engage in this practice, that sense of, of combativeness begins to subside. You know, like, um, the reason, I mean, one reason I think that there's that sense of combativeness is that um, almost everyone we meet is a stranger. You know, so we we don't have, uh, we don't feel uh, connected with them. You know, it's interesting that um, when you look at human psychology, the um, human psychology tends to dwell on the obstacles that have been placed um, in our lives, the uh, difficulties we've had to overcome. You know, like uh, so, uh, and we tend to forget. Uh, or not bring to mind all the things that have been done for us. 
Right? But then, uh, there's nothing insidious about this. It makes sense. I mean, if you think of it in a, uh, on a physical level, if, uh, if a street is being repaired and you have to go around, you, know, you have to put some energy into going around that obstacle. You know, like you have to you know, like focus on the obstacle and to get around it or remove it. Um, and the same is true in our psychological life. You know, like if, there's, uh, if somebody is causing us distress... You know, um, at some level, then that causes us to focus on that. When things are given to us, we don't have to focus on. I mean, think of growing up, and you know, every single day as a kid, you expect that your parents will put food on the table, and you don't think about that. You know, know, as a kid, you don't think about you know, like mom and dad going to work and what they have to do in order to produce the food. It's simply expected, and like you you don't bring it to mind. That's why it's necessary to have a practice to bring our focus to that which has been done for us. Because we don't spontaneously bring that to mind. So if, we ha- if however, we have a practice in which we uh, begin to focus on all that has been given us, um, then that balances our um, uh, our relationship to the world. Instead of uh, instead of doing combat, we begin to see all that has been given us. Um, there's um, a wonderful form of this practice called Nikon in uh, in uh, Pure Land Buddhism, uh, where um, like you if you went on a Nikon retreat, you'd um, in the interviews, the person leading the retreat, you know, would begin with, um, you know, like, uh, because it's a, a Japanese practice and a traditional culture, they'd say, you know, like, well, what did your parents give you? What did your parents do for you? you know, like, and, and you'd have to get specific, you know, like, uh, you know, like you'd have to give specific examples, you know, like, and then they gradually extend it outward, you know, from, from that. You know, what did your teachers give you? What did your siblings give you? What, uh, how did you benefit from this? How did you benefit from that? And it transforms the person's relationship. Now, this kind of practice is... Uh, the way I put it is that it balances our relationship to the world. It's not a practice to um, delude ourselves into the idea that there are never any obstacles placed in our path. Right? So it's not pretending that there's, you know, the road isn't being repaired. Uh, but it's bringing to our awareness that there's more going on in existence than people trying to cause us problems. You know, like, so um, in my... Um, own teaching on this with um, with my own students. What I developed was: uh, Are people familiar with the Book of Hours? I like the Book of Hours because it's a tradi- the traditional Book of Hours in the West. Uh, um, it's the monastic Book of Hours. There's eight, you know, like, and there's um, eight times during the day. Okay? So in a in a traditional. Um, in both monasticism and there's also Book of Hours for lay people. Uh, uh, they, this, for example, the psalms would be distributed among the uh, among the hours and recited at those times to bring one's focus back to a more transcendental context, you know, regularly through the day. What I did was I adapted this kind of practice to the Book of Hours. 
You know, like so that each hour during the day is a time is a time to express our gratitude for some aspect of existence. You know, like, and um, if you're inter- I won't go through the whole book of hours. I'm just telling you, uh, you know, like how I'm uh, personally I adapted this kind of practice. But those who are interested can see a copy afterwards. But uh, beginning with um, uh, it. The Book of Hours begins with giving uh, thanks and uh, a sense of gratitude for um, the sun, the moon, the earth, and as you go through the week, other celestial um, manifestations. Very simple. We forget how much the sun has done for us. Now, it doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter whether the sun has a personal relationship to you. You The sun is not saying, hey, Jim, you know, here's some warmth. <laughs> you know, like, it doesn't matter. Like in, uh, in the Nikon practice, they illustrate it this way. Suppose somebody needs some bread. You know, like they're extremely hungry. They're starving. You know, like, so somebody sees that they're starving and gives them a loaf of bread. Okay, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that um, uh, somebody's going down the street carrying some groceries, the loaf of bread accidentally falls off, you know, out of the sack. So the kid um, sees the bread, you know, a couple of minutes later. It's like a gift, you know, like, you know, like. But in both cases, the important thing is that uh, is that the kid has received the bread, you know, like. So, and uh, gratitude for the re- uh, receiving that nourishment can be built on uh, at either at either level. Yeah? Do you have a question? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like uh, at the next hour, there's an expression of of gratitude for our ancestors, our biological ancestors. Yeah, going back to seven generations. Yeah, and seven generations. Seven generations ago, there were 128 people who were your direct biological ancestor. So something about the way you stand, something about the way you speak, something about the way you interact in the world was a gift from them. You know, like, it doesn't matter who they were. The purpose here isn't to make you a genealogist. The purpose here is to make you aware of that sense of dependence, the, of the gifting nature of existence. You know, like All those people made your life possible. If they had not lived, you would not be here. How many people here practice in the Zen tradition? Um, Quite a few, quite a few. You know the chanting of the lineage? uh, For those of you who are not uh, involved in the Zen tradition, there is a ceremony in the Zen uh, tradition where they chant... Uh, they chant the lineage of uh, Zen ancestors. You know, um, they uh, usually begin with Shakyamuni Buddha, and then they simply chant the names of all those Zen masters down through the centuries. I consider that a, a very similar kind of uh, expression of cultivating gratitude. You know, like of cultivating a sense of you know, like if Dogen hadn't gone to China, you know, I like, can come back to Japan. I wouldn't be sitting here in this hall today. You know, like, it's just a way of saying thank you. But we need ceremonies, structured occasions, to say thank you because of that funny psychological um, tilt in the human mind. 
that the human mind tends to dwell on the obstacles. So we need to actually create occasions for the expression of that gratitude. Then there's um, the expression of gratitude for different classes of people, and this is very similar to the how you cultivate the original four immeasurables, you know, starting with yourself and gradually extending it to different classes of people. So, uh, you know, you have friends, people who've helped you, and then, uh, then there's expressing gratitude for difficult people and enemies. This is a tough one, yeah? <laughs> this is a tough one. Expressing gratitude for enemies be, or people, uh, very destructive people. The main obstacle in expressing gratitude or love or compassion for destructive and malevolent people is that it feels like you're taking their side. It feels like you're becoming an ally with them. It feels like you're approving of what they're doing. You know, so, um, and the way you distinguish that is by recalling situations in which your love and uh, um, and sense of connectedness, connectedness with someone has remained even though you disapprove of what they're doing. Yeah, those of you who have raised children have experienced that. You know, like so, children can misbehave in a, in an extreme way. They can be very destructive at times. You know, like so, you know, like and yet your love for them does not diminish. Those of you who have had very long term friendships, you know, your friendships have ups ups and downs, right? Like, I mean, you may even have a, a period in your friendship where you say to them, you know, like, gosh, you know, I really, I really don't agree with what you're about to do, you know, but I still love you. you know, like, so you, you can make that distinction. Another way of protecting yourself from feeling that you're like aligning with, you know, destructive people, enemies, that kind of thing, is to add a phrase to the contemplation that... Um, and it harm none, bringing harm to no one, um, may even destructive people you know, like find happiness, may even destructive people be free from suffering. So, so that way, you know, you're bringing it right into the core of Buddhist ethics, which is non-harm, see? Bringing harm to no one, you know, may you be free from suffering. Bringing harm to no one, may, may good fortune fill your life. Like so, um, and then there's, uh, as I said, I won't go through this, but uh, page by page. But my my point in bringing this up is that if you systematically cultivate gratitude for all the aspects of existence, you know, like then a sense arises of how much has been given you, you know, like, and on that foundation of. Uh, you know, perceiving the gifting nature of existence, it's possible then for the heart to completely open up, you know, and say, and want to give back just a small portion of what has been given us. So, recalling to mind, bringing to my mind all that has been given me, I vow to save all sentient beings from suffering. See, that's the connection. You know, like, remembering everything that has been given me, I vow to save all sentient beings from suffering. There's one more practice, and that's the practice of forgiveness. 
So in order for bodhicitta to completely blossom, so we need we need one more element. You know, like and uh, forgiveness, um, like uh, you could think of it as immeasurable forgiveness. You know, like so, uh, it's rooted in uh, um, that experience to uh, want to let something go. You know, like to want to get over it. You know, like to to move on with your life. You know, like. Um, it's a common experience that uh, someone wounds us or um, distresses us. You know, like in, and we go through a certain period of trying to deal with that. And then the wish arises that to put that behind. That's the root of forgiveness, you know, like to, to let that go. Uh, it's very interesting. I have a student, I mentioned this before, but it's worth it. You know, like when she was practicing um, immeasurable compassion, and then we reached the section on uh, extending immeasurable compassion to difficult people. Um, uh, there were four people where she couldn't do that. You know, like I mean, she had a list. You know, that those four people. <laughs> so, and that's where um, that's where cultivating forgiveness comes in. You know, like so. Um, one of one of the ways uh, that we can cultivate forgiveness is by. Uh, um, and this can be a little embarrassing, is by recalling to mind the not so splendid things we've done in our own life. <laughs> you know, like, and uh, see, one of the things, one of the foundations for all these practices is equalizing self and other. You know, just as I wish to be happy, so all sentient beings wish to be happy. You know, just as I wish to be free from suffering. All sentient beings wish to be free from suffering. Just as I wish to be forgiven for my not-so-perfect moments in this life, you know, like, so others wish to be forgiven. You know, like, and so I extend that sense of forgiveness. You know, like, you know, like whatever, you know, like, um, the last hour of the day in this book of hours is uh, is dedicated to conf- uh, cultivating forgiveness. For example, whatever harmful, negative, or destructive deeds I have done, through body, speech, or mind, intentionally or unintentionally, I do hereby repent those deeds. I do hereby forgive myself for those deeds. I do hereby release those deeds to the understanding and compassion of the enlightening ones. Whatever harmful, negative, or destructive deeds others have done to me through body, speech, or mind, intentionally or unintentionally, I do hereby forgive those deeds. I do hereby release those deeds to the understanding and compassion of the enlightening ones. And I do hereby resolve to attain the unobtainable way of infinite compassion. So, wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) <laughs> like so, this forgiveness is the antidote to um, revenge. Yeah, so it's the antidote to revenge and vengefulness. You know, like in uh, in a you know, like there are whole sections, there are whole nations that are involved in revenge. That you know goes on for uh, it's passed down from century to century to century to century. Or like so. Um, that's what the Buddha meant by samsara. You know, like back and forth, back and forth, never getting resolved, never getting anywhere. You know, just uh, uh, furiously staying in place. 
Um, so forgiveness is the antidote to that. So upon the foundation of immeasurable gratitude and immeasurable forgiveness, we then build a bridge to the realm of bodhicitta. Now, bodhicitta is the, um, means the illuminating mind. So uh, bodhi means mind or heart. And, um, excuse me, chitta means mind or heart, and bodhi means illumination. It's very interesting. I've, I've spoken about this before, but it's, it's worth, worth recalling. There is no English word that I have come across that is a good equivalent for chitta, you know, like, or uh, in Chinese, shin. So the story I like to tell about this is when, uh, when I was in Korea, I went to see one of my teacher's teachers. He's quite an elderly Korean man. And his English was better than my Korean, but it wasn't very good. And uh, our communication was not um, uh, very clear. And so finally, in frustration, he looks at me and he goes, You must understand your mind. He was pounding the center of his chest. You must understand your mind. And I goes, Oh, my mind? And he goes, <laughs> No! Mind! He goes like this. You know, like, so, you know, like, and so something clicked for me. I, I wish I could say I had a great big Kensho and breakthrough and I'd be, you know, but, uh, but I, would, I would call it a click. You know, like, so, you know, like, and uh, um, it was like, Oh, he's talking about the heart. You know, he's talking about the heart. And so in the Tibetan tradition, I'm told that you know, they have this threefold bows, so boom, boom, boom. And what it means is body, speech, and mind. Mind, okay? Yeah? So something, is, you know, like when you read in Buddhist texts the word mind, they're not talking about intellect or discriminative consciousness. They're talking about the wisdom of the heart. The wisdom of the heart. Isn't it interesting? I don't know, maybe somebody here has an idea, but I have not been able to come across an English word that just neatly, uh, neatly encapsulates that the way chitta does in Sanskrit or shin does in Chinese. It's very interesting. Uh, you know, when we talk about heart, we tend to think of like, oh, he's emotional or sentimental. You know, like, we, don't, we don't really see the heart as a source of wisdom. But it is. The core insight of the Buddha, once again, was the interconnectedness of all things. When you feel grateful for something, that sense of connectedness appears right in the center of the chest. That's what gratitude means. That's how you know that you're feeling grateful. You, know, like you can recall to your mind right now something or someone that you feel very grateful for. Right? And that feeling will arise right here. That is transcendent wisdom, being present. That's how you know it's there. But it's atrophied. It needs to be cultivated. It needs to, you, need to be, you need to recognize its significance. Most often we don't recognize its significance. Yeah? In the Zen tradition that, um, that I studied in, uh, bodhicitta is expressed in what are called the four bodhisattva vows. Yeah? So uh, people are familiar with the four bodhisattva vows. I mean, those uh, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. The hindrances are inexhaustible. I vow to extinguish them all. The teachings are innumerable. I vow to learn them all. 
The way of the Buddha is unsurpassable, and I vow to attain it. I've also seen various uh, interpretations of this. There's always an interpretation. You know, so. <laughs> but one of the things that, uh, that immediately presents itself uh, is uh, that the, the vows are contradictions. You know, like, uh, they're, I mean, in a, in a rational sense, you can't do them. You know, like uh, it's not like uh, um, like I vow to read the newspaper every morning. You know, like <laughs> it's more, you know, like uh, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. It's like um, the vastness of that uh, that sense of uh, of commitment and interconnectedness you know, is uh, truly mind-boggling. I remember um, my teacher Sensenim used to get up. I'm pretty sure he still does. Gets up every morning, and before uh, group practice, he would do a ceremony in his room in which he would, uh, part of the ceremony was his personal vows. Um, And one of them was, I will freely project myself through all the realms of existence for the benefit of all sentient beings. Yeah, I will freely project my... So, you know, I I, uh, studied with him for a long time, and I was frequently there in the morning, sleepy, and then one morning it occurred to me that he really meant it. And I, it was like a, I had this tremendous sense of vertigo, you know, like that, I, um, that, he, that he actually meant to freely project himself through all the realms of existence for the benefit of all sentient beings. It was, uh, um, it was amazing to me. But the, uh, the bodhisattva vows have this sense of vastness. They have this sense of... Um, of a transcendent commitment. Uh, another thing Sensenim used to do uh, um, was when I would complain about my practice not bearing fruit or not being deep enough or, or that my legs were hurting or my back was aching, he'd say, just keep practicing for 10,000 years nonstop, okay? <laughs> like, you know, like, so, in other words, don't worry about it. Just, just keep going. You know, like, so, um, <laughs> you know, like, and you know, like that, that sense of opening up to that realm of vastness is, uh, is truly wonderful because um, it's based on that sense of connectedness with all of existence you know, with, uh, without any exception. To me, the uh, a way to think about it is, you know, I'd rather save all sentient beings. Is, is is that there's no one excluded from that? Right. Yeah, rather than I'm not, I'm probably not going to get to all of them. You know, individually. Yes. <laughs> or and I and I suspect I may not learn all the teachings uh-huh. <laughs> or any of them. Uh, <laughs> but, but I mean, the idea is that I'm open that there's no, that there's no, there's nothing that I will reject. There. Right. Nothing that I will. Nothing, I'm, nothing that we will. You know. I'm studying uh, one of the uh, Perfection of Wisdom texts uh, now, uh, which um, deal with this topic, and it's called um, "The Perfection of Wisdom for the Splendor of the Sun." Okay. And uh, the splendor, the splendor of the sun, is the name of a bodhisattva. So, and uh, um, this uh, sutra uh, discusses, you know, uh, the nature of the bodhisattva is like the sun. You know, how is it like the sun? Because the sun shines upon all without discrimination. 
the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, the you know, the snake and the uh, mouse, and uh, nourishes nourishes all beings. So the bodhisattva is like the sun. How? How is the bodhisattva like the sun? What does the bodhisattva do to uh, bring about the cessation of suffering of all sentient beings? Yeah. Well, here's the connection between our meditational practice and the uh, cultivation of the immeasurables. So, when you sit in meditation, yeah, one moment of letting go, one moment of release, is a moment of release for all sentient existence. See? Comprehending the deep interconnectedness of all things. It is not you that is meditating any more than it is you that is breathing. Yeah? All of existence breathes you. Okay? So when you enter into meditation, it is not you that is meditating. Yeah? It, and it is not you that is letting go of the knots and hindrances in the mind and the heart. Yeah? Rather, all of existence is allowing or creating conditions for the release of that suffering. You see, it is clinging which causes suffering. You know, that is the ultimate cause of suffering. Because in this rivering world, nothing can be clung to. Right? So one moment of that letting go, completely, you know, one moment of that letting go is a reign of wisdom upon all sentient existence. Yes. So, so yes, it is possible for the bodhisattva to benefit all sentient beings. I like it really is possible. I like um, so. Comments or questions? Do you feel inclined to move in this direction? <laughs> yes. Uh, the practice leader, <clears throat> the Zen Center. When I mentioned that I was feeling uh, terrified and frustrated, said, "Well, I want you to notice." what it feels like when you are terrified and frustrated and reminded me that we are urged to feel the feelings and the feelings the mind and the mind right. and the body and the body right. took that home with me and when I was feeling terrified or frustrated <clears throat> asked myself what does it feel when I feel this way um, and my question is is that, is that what feeling and the feelings mean. In other words, how does one, when I'm actually noticing how I feel, it is the heart or the belly that I notice, that it is a somatic uh-huh. event and not an intellectual event that I am noticing. When I am terrified, my heart is pounding. When right. I, my, my stomach is churning. When I am frustrated, it also is in the heart. And I don't know how to describe that feeling. But you are saying about Chita and this being, the mind, is uh, reverberating somewhere. But I still don't know how it, it's a transmission from here to here when I ask myself, what's the feeling in that feeling? Yes. It's yours. <laughs> um, the practice you're, uh, you're um, referring to is um, when difficult feelings arise, such as fear, terror, and also uh, pains in the body, um, uh, 
the the instinct of the mind is to pull away from them, you know, like uh, and uh, and I mean I mean am, small and mind. They're like uh, here, um, and it makes sense that the instinct of the mind is to pull away from them because um, if you touch a hot stove, you pull away. You know, like uh, so. Uh, there are these circumstances, though, in which it is not possible to pull away from them. And so it's, uh, but the mind has the habit of wanting to do that, you know, like of wanting to, you know, like, and so um, the, uh, you get stuck, you know, like, and the appearance is that that uh, difficult emotional or bodily state becomes very solid, you know, because the mind is, keeps doing this. You know, like, when you look at the mind and the mind or the body and the body, the feeling and the feeling, you bring your attention, to, you redirect the mind to precisely that state that you were trying to pull away from. And something very remarkable happens when you do that. That is, you begin to see that it's not solid. You know, like, that, it, uh, that it only appeared that way because you were trying to you know, separate yourself from it. And um, it's a very effective form of meditation uh, for difficult emotional and chronic pain, uh, uh, pain conditions. So, like, uh, so instead of uh, uh, people who are suffering from various forms of chronic pain, the, I mean, the, the instinct, of course, is to remove oneself from it. But if you actually use what is causing the pain, either emotionally or physically, as your object of meditation, um, then uh, all of a sudden that situation becomes the means for focusing your mind. You know, like, and you begin to see that, uh, see that uh, arising as a process. Okay. Seeing that arising as a process, it is possible to release it. You know, like, and... Uh, and substantially reduce, or in some cases even end, one's sense of suffering over over that uh, appearance. Does that make sense? Have I res- responded? <laughs> More later. We'll talk about that. <laughs> this guy's tough. <laughs> I just would like to close with um, the Bodhisattva vows. Um, uh, close my talk with the Bodhisattva vows in an in expanded uh, I've expanded them a bit to connect them with what I call the bridge to Bodhicitta like, so bringing to mind all that has been done for me all that has been given me I vow to save all sentient existence from suffering bringing to mind all that has been done for me all that has been given to me I vow to extinguish all the innumerable hindrances to enlightenment in order to save all sentient existence from suffering. Bringing to mind all that has been done for me, all that has been given me, I vow to learn all of the innumerable teachings in order to liberate all sentient... Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month, and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live. Please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.